Hello, listeners, and welcome to FF Plus, a spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, and discussion. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me tonight is Patrick. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Before we get started, we've got a couple of announcements. First things first, we wanted to let you know that our September donor pick has been chosen. We gave our patrons five Robin Williams movies to choose from, and Dead Poets Society came out strong. Very big support for that one. Surprisingly, Mrs. Doubtfire came in second place, Patrick. I was not expecting that. I thought for sure it'd be something else. At some point, I want to cover Mrs. Doubtfire. It's one of those that I think a lot of people like, but it's not really thought about because it doesn't hit a lot of the heavier themes that something like a Dead Poet Society would. Yeah, well, we'll see. <laughs> you have to. You might have to convince. I may have to like rewatch it first because okay, that you know all I remember is cross-dressing Robin Williams, and that doesn't scream like, "Hey, let's have a great conversation <laughs> about movie themes" to me. But okay. perhaps uh, the other announcement is that this is incredible timing. We have a chance to tell you about the Alfred Hitchcock Classics Collection. It has just been released on 4K Ultra HD uh, in a combo pack, and it comes with the Blu-ray version of the films and also digital codes. It's a collection that includes the, for the very first time ever, original, never-released, uncut version of Psycho. It also includes Rear Window, which we just covered. It includes Vertigo, which we have an episode on. Uh, and it includes The Birds, which I just watched for the first time last week and loved. So I'm really excited about this. Hitchcock, of course, is the universally recognized master of suspense, and he has directed some of cinema's most thrilling and unforgettable classics, starring Hollywood favorites such as my man, Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly, Anthony Perkins, Janet Lee, Tippi Hedren, Kim Novak, Rod Taylor. The list goes on and on and on. This essential collection features hours of bonus features as well, which is always a draw for me, Patrick. Uh, And this collection will be coming with the collectible disc book packaging, which has hours of bonus features such as documentaries, expert commentaries, interviews, screen tests, and more. To celebrate this, we have five digital copies of Psycho to give away. To be honest, this is the HD version of the film and not the uncut version that you would get when you buy this cool 4K package. So you're still going to want to get that. But nothing wrong with having the original in ultra awesome high quality anyway. Uh, The contest is going to be very simple this time around. To enter, all you have to do is send an email to feelinfilm at gmail.com and tell us your favorite Hitchcock film. The contest will end and winners will be chosen on Thursday morning, September the 17th, and we will notify the winners by email. So again, just send an email to feelinfilm, F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M, at gmail.com, and tell us what your favorite Hitchcock movie is, and you will be entered to win. First, this is a film that is coming up on Netflix. It will be available September 16th. This is The Devil All the Time starring a humongously talented ensemble cast of Tom Holland, Bill Skarsgård, Riley Keough, I think is how I say her last name, Jason Clark, Sebastian Stan, Haley Bennett, Harry Melling, Eliza Scanlon, Pokey Lafarge, and Mia Wasikowski, uh, as well as Robert Pattinson, and is directed by Antonio Campos. The synopsis for this film adaptation of a novel is that sinister characters converge around a young man devoted 
to protecting those he loves in a post-war backwoods town teeming with corruption and brutality. And it's very fitting synopsis once you've seen the film. It's pretty much right on point. Uh, that young man devoted to protecting those he loves would be played by Tom Holland in this film, which is appropriate. He's the kind of center of semi-goodness, I guess you might say. Look, That's challenging in this movie. <laughs> it, it really is. So this is a dark, grim, and unrelenting film. All of those words would accurately describe it. It's almost like punishment watching this, what I would call generational cycle of violence, hypocrisy, and vengeance at times. But I wanted to start here, Patrick. What did you think about it? And being as how it is a really tough watch and it's really dark all the way through it, do you think that there's value in this movie for people? From an artistic standpoint, absolutely. I think that there are some technical stuff that's pretty beautiful the way some she some scenes are shot the dialogue between several of the characters it's a very quiet movie until there are moments of brutality and when the brutality happens it borderline gets disgusting and you know there were some parts where i didn't feel were real necessary i think they added a little bit more to the gratuitous side they didn't really border on slasher film type stuff but there were parts that felt unnecessary. Now I say that from a, a moral compass standpoint for me personally, and for some people it may not bother them, but when you look at the story as a whole, what those moments do, the moments that feel shocking, they offer up an opportunity for you to really feel empathy for the characters that are being enacted upon or that are acting on others. You would normally say, I would never do that. And that's probably still the case. But the motivation behind some of these actions, when you see it in context, really allows you to feel empathy for certain characters when it happens. And so I do think there is value. It's not an easy watch. This is one of those movies where you want to pay attention. You don't want to be on your phone watching this at all because the full impact comes from a complete – which I think – look, have respect for movies. Watch them without a distraction just in general. But for this one specifically – you want to pay attention. You want to be able to to capture those things. Otherwise, it does come across like, well, why'd they put that in there? That was stupid or that's gross. They shouldn't do that. And if you're not fully connected and fully engaged in the story, you're going to miss those little moments of impact that I think are important. But I will say it's not for the faint of heart. It's a movie that I was surprised, honestly. Uh, I, the trailer looked really appealing, and so getting it was fun. And then I started watching it and was like, oh my gosh, what am I getting into? So I I would say that it's in the vein of No Country for Old Men in terms of some of the tone, and but uh, probably more brutal in that case. Yeah, I mean, the violence on screen is not frequent. It is very... It's hard to explain because it's not super gory, except there's a couple of shots that are gory, but they are visuals that I would say stick with you. They're the kind of shots that depict violence in a way that it ingrains itself in your memory and makes you remember what you saw. And then it stays on your brain as you're continuing to watch the film. And then these things sort of build one upon each other, these kind of shocking visuals. I think... 
like you said, just to agree with you, I think the cinematography is fantastic. I love the score of this. It has a really beautiful score at times, and it has this often gospel song-based soundtrack because of some of the religious character aspects in the religious themes that are in play here. One thing that I think that contributes to its value as well, of course, above and beyond just the acting, I think that the performances are incredible. This is one of the best, if not the best, performance that Tom Holland may have ever given. If you think he's just Spidey and just a quipster, this is the movie that's going to sell you, and you're going to say, oh, my bad, that guy can act. Like, he's legit. He he can do that Spidey thing because he's a good actor, not just because he's funny, you know, and... I was really appreciative of getting to see him. But the other thing is just that I think it does loop around eventually in the end in a way that I feel makes it somewhat worth it. There's enough of a sliver of hope at points in this film to not make me want to just go like run away <laughs> and like go into the mountains and be in serenity because I feel so terrible about the world. But the problem is Patrick, these people do exist. Like things like this happen. And so maybe they don't happen in quite the, the packed in kind of condensed way, but there is some truth to the ideas that this movie is selling with the way that the interconnectedness of the characters. So to kind of explain what this movie is, it's kind of like an art house backwoods soap opera. And it has a very literary feel to the way that the film plays out for you as the viewer, right down to the occasional narration. I found that interesting. Uh, believe it or not, that narrator is actually the author of the book. So I thought that was cool. His name is Donald Ray Pollock, and so he provides the on-screen narration at times. It's not frequent, but every once in a while he'll be like, blah, 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 thought this and this and this, and then we'll shift. The style of the movie involves shifting timelines and, as I mentioned, generational. So, for example, we start off with Tom Holland's character. His name is Arvin. We see him as a baby, and he is, you know, actually, we don't even start with him as a baby. We start with his father in the war before his father even gets married and has Tom Holland's character. And it progresses through to Tom Holland as an adult. And the people that exist in this town and in these people's spheres of influence sort of move in and out of each other. And we see the twisted nature of some of the secrets that they all have. How did the style of this movie work for you? So beyond just the violence and the theme of it, like the structure... It reminded me a lot of William Faulkner as an author and the way that he structures some of his books. There was a, a book called As I Lay Dying, where each chapter was titled based on who was narrating, who was talking. But you didn't know where it took place in the story, and that was part of what Faulkner wanted to do with his writing style was kind of get you in the thick of conversations and kind of figure out, have a little mystery, a little treasure hunt of where is this taking place in the story based on verbal cues, that kind of stuff. And I felt a little bit of that in this. The The names become very important because the flashbacks don't feel as obvious sometimes. I mean, you'll have like an occasional seven years earlier or a, a year and you have to, again, that's why I'm saying you have to pay attention 
because if you look away for too long and you look back and you're seeing Tom Holland and you're like, well, who is this guy? There's not a lot of pullback to continue to remind you of where his character comes from, who his family is. And I think that's by design, Aaron, because I think just like William Faulkner, you are being asked to immerse yourself in this town, the soap opera. You're asked to kind of trust your instincts and say, okay, yeah, I know that this person is related to this person or this person's got a sister who does this. And that soap opera analogy really does work because not only of the interconnection, but also the fact that there's a lot of people, not a ton, not like a thousand or anything like that, but this feels like a small town where everybody knows everybody's business. Or if they don't, when something happens, they can pretty well guess at who's responsible for it because of where their family comes from. Oh, this took place in this part of town. That was over near so-and-so's farm. So maybe you could talk to that that guy's son because he lives there now. And more than likely, that guy's son or whoever it is is responsible for whatever happens. And so you get that feel for the small town and all that kind of busybody type of embrace with all these guys. So when I look at the way the movie's structured, I think that that really captures a small town feel where it's impossible not to keep secrets. It's impossible to kind of hold that down. And, you know, when those secrets get revealed, consequences happen. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and everyone is not evil either in this movie. So don't get us wrong. We we're saying it's got that no country for old men tone. Uh, it also I I think it feels a lot like a movie called The Place Beyond the Pines, both in the way that it follows different generations of characters and kind of how some of their actions tend to pass down from generation to generation that violence and just everybody's not necessarily full-on evil some of the violence occurs from people that are very purely evil there are also characters in this that perform violence or something of a more of an vengeance kind of nature or in a revenge nature and you know with good intentions i would say but that doesn't necessarily make what they're doing correct and so that's what the fun of wrestling with this was for me this was fantastic. I loved it. I actually thought it was awesome. And it's one of my favorite films of the year. I thought the ensemble was outstanding. And I am excited to watch it again. But I fully understand that people like Patrick <laughs> may feel differently and not have any interest in doing that because it's so tough to get through the first time. But yeah, September 16th, Netflix, people, you'll have your choice and you can check it out or not check it out. But I think it's worth watching a first time for those that at least have some stomach for, like you said, Patrick, the the level of violence and the few gory moments that you're going to have to sit through. Well, the second film we have to talk about is a documentary, and this one is called All In the Fight for Democracy. It'll be available on Amazon Prime on September the 18th. It is from directors Liz Garbus and Lisa Cortez, and it features Stacey Abrams, the one-time gubernatorial candidate of Georgia. The synopsis is this, in anticipation of the 2020 presidential election, All In, Fight for Democracy, examines the often overlooked yet insidious issue of voter suppression in the United States. The film interweaves personal experiences with current activism and historical insight to expose a problem that has corrupted our democracy from the very beginning. With the perspective and expertise of Stacey Abrams, the former minority leader of the Georgia House of Representatives, minority in more than one way, 
the documentary offers an insider's look into laws and barriers to voting that most people don't even know are threats to their basic rights as citizens of the United States. A couple things to talk about through this one. We always say that good documentaries either inform or entertain, and great ones tend to do both. So where does this land for you on that scale? Well, at first, it didn't really start landing on the entertainment factor because I like a good documentary, and this ended up being a really good documentary. In some ways, it started out feeling a little bit like a rehash of 13th, and that's not to discredit 13th because it's an amazing documentary. But it felt in the beginning like this is information that I've already heard. I understand that this is a problem. You're just framing it around a specific issue and not a generalized type thing. What I came to find out, Aaron, was in the back half of the film, what we see is that this isn't just a black narrative. It's a political one more than anything else. And that people are very selfish. I mean, that's really what, if I could pull away one phrase from this, it's like people are selfish and Stacey Abrams has my vote. That, that would be the, the big ideas that come from my viewing. But I, I was compelled as the documentary went on. And so my entertainment value went up. And then the things that were being uncovered, all the new information that I was getting really propelled it to a place where I wanted to start recommending it to people. In fact, I was talking to my dad this afternoon. He's a huge fan of Ava DuVernay's 13th. And I said, if you like that, then you'll want to take a look at this when it releases because it has that same kind of approach. Hey, you didn't know this, but these things actually happen. And it takes it one step further and it says, look, this doesn't just affect black people. <laughs> it also affects Hispanics and Jews and just a lot of different cultures. And it comes from a political place, not just from a racial place. And so for me personally, it gave me a tactile connection to it. It made me feel like I had a, a way to be all in, a way to connect to it, as opposed to something like 13th, which made me feel more connected to the injustice that was happening to black people. But I still felt and still struggle sometimes with that tertiary perspective. All in allows because it encompasses a large number of people, a large, you know, more than just one group of people, and it deals with the, the actual acts that are taking place of voter suppression, that's something that I can feel more connected to and get behind fighting against because the fact that it could happen to my city, could happen to Sherwood, just as much as it could happen to any other city based on the politics of the day. Yes. I, I don't know that I would completely agree with that, but yes, I, I get where you're going with that. And I agree that the point of the documentary showing voter suppression going all the way back through America's history mm -hmm. and therefore not being just about racial groups. It's been about voter suppressing of anyone who would challenge the power of those in power. So it's That's what poli I was at, yeah. political in the sense that whatever the people in power have to suppress in order to stay there that's what's getting suppressed. And so typically that has been throughout our history, the things it focuses on, like you mentioned, obviously it does focus on the racial aspect because that's been huge throughout this country's history, but it also talks about women. I mean, women had to fight to get the right to vote in this country as well. It talks about young people because that's another 
demographic that many people empower, which is our system that leans incredibly elderly for some strange reason. You know, they don't want to allow these people to vote because these people may not have the same type of views. Uh, it talks about the poor and just in general wealth and the generation and the gap there that, that occurs that is worth suppressing voters. And so I liked that a lot as well. I thought that it was better for that. Like you said, it, it was, it made me see that it was a broader issue and because of, you know, use the word narrative. And I know where you're going with that because that's what we see on social media. That's what we see in the news all the time, mm -hmm. but that's because it's a real issue still today. It's not because that issue doesn't exist, but it does go far beyond that. It's more right. than that. Hispanic yeah. women, et cetera. Yeah, and 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 I want to I want to make that clear that that is part of my takeaway from this. But the act of voter suppression itself was articulated really well in this documentary, and I don't want to discredit and say, well, here's just another documentary about the black narrative. That's not what I'm saying at all. Those are important and they're necessary. What I pulled from this that made it equally as valuable is the fact that this isn't pointing at Republicans or Democrats. And it's not just pointing at the poor or women or young people. This is something that everybody can and should feel a sense of ownership because at some point you're going to be, well, I'm not going to be a woman at some point, but at some point somebody's going to be in college. My son's going to be in college. And at some point I'm going to get old. And at some point somebody's going to lose their job and may end up being part of the poor system or living in a neighborhood that is predominantly one type of social class, they're going to become victims of this type of manipulation that tries to get a particular outcome for a particular candidate or a particular party. And that's, that's where I thought the power came from this documentary is that it's saying, look, as a people, our democracy is being threatened. Our inability to vote is being threatened or our ability to, to vote is being threatened this came really interesting uh watching this came around the same time as i'm re-watching newsroom season one where <laughs> that, that's an issue like there was an episode specifically targeting the issue of a woman not being able to vote because she didn't have a driver's license why didn't she have a driver's license because she doesn't drive she's old and she doesn't need to and that prevented her from voting in her state that she had been voting in for well over 50 years. And so the timing was very serendipitous because it reminded me that at some point, even if it's not an issue today or this year or in the next four years, it is an issue. And it's something that needs to be addressed by everybody. Yeah. I, not to be the argumentative type, but I would just clarify, I, I, think it's not about like it might become an issue the problem is that it's always been an issue and it has never we've never lived in a country that everybody can vote in like we've never had a true democracy is uh -huh. what i pulled out of it at least I, was that we believe we do we want to believe we do we want to think that we have this great system where we get to choose all of these things and the reality is that some of us have gotten to participate in that. <laughs> and Absolutely, at yeah. no point in our lives or our history has everyone in this country been afforded that right. And it will continue to erode to the point of destruction if we can't fix it. Like That's, if we can't yeah. come together and make it the way it's supposed to be. 
Yeah. What I was getting at is that my son can't vote right now. So he can't be a part of the solution because he's not being affected by it. Plus, he's seven and a half years old, so he doesn't care about those things. That's what I'm saying is that it's a problem that needs to be addressed. I'm not saying that was some, at some point it wasn't and now it is. I'm saying that just like I guess it's woke culture, at some point documentaries like this open our eyes to the fact that this is a problem and we need to be a part of the solution. As someone who has never had a problem voting, this is brand new information to me. And so it surprised me. And so from my my takeaway, I'm saying I'm I'm looking at it going, oh, okay, I need to probably take some ownership of this because it is important and it has been happening and it will continue to happen. And it may not be affecting me directly, but that doesn't excuse me from trying to be a part of the solution. Absolutely. I love that you said that because I think that's part of what this the point of this is. It's about bringing the information to everyone because like most problems when it comes to either polit- political stuff or civil rights, the groups that are being suppressed or oppressed are not the ones that can solve the problem. <laughs> it's the ones that can, the ones that have the right to vote and have never had to worry about it are the ones that need to be loud and vocal and start pressing for change and change the way in which they think in order to be able to include those that have had to f- focus on this. And yeah, it, it, the system needs help. Some of the stats, man, were just mind-blowing. When, when I learned that there were nine states that if you didn't vote in an election, you could lose your right to vote for the next election, I was like, Ooh. okay, what? And I remember texting you, and I, I was asking you the question. I was like, how do we live in a country where states have different voting rights? Like, why is that a state issue? Why is that not a national standard for who how you vote? It's It should be... We're voting for national elections, right? I mean, I guess if you want to change it for state-level elections, maybe that's different, but not when you're talking about national stuff. So it's just – it's really messy, and the other thing I really love about this is that I didn't ever once really feel it was partisan. It never felt to me like it was like, hey, go Republicans, bad Democrats, or hey, go Democrats, bad Republicans. It was like, hey – both sides have screwed up and tried to use this system to further their cause, and we need to fix it. And I yeah. thought that that elevated it for me. Um, it, it does get a bit repetitive. I, I think toward the end, I was thinking to myself, okay, and frankly, it's a little sad that it gets repetitive because the reason I got that feeling is because we were hitting on so many different groups and different types of voter suppression that I was like, my gosh, it just keeps going and going and going, which tells yeah. you a lot. But um, yeah, as a doc, I think it is really, really great. It's very thorough. Um, And yeah, I think it's great information for anybody. For sure. I think one of the surprising pieces of information that I got was that early on, the state governments would issue out these, what they call literacy exams, that they would issue to people with insane questions that (laughs) a guy who's a professor of law students said, I gave this to my first year law students and two thirds of them failed. Or I think he said all of them failed, and maybe two-thirds of them only got like half the questions right. And these were written back in like what the 1860s or whenever, when you know voting rights were supposedly for everybody. It it just blew my mind because it's so unfair. It is absolutely so unfair. And the fact that there are states out there that at will can just take you off the out of the voting pool. Oh, you haven't voted in six months? I should go ahead and remove you. The the purge, I think, is what they call it, which is appropriate. Which is appropriate, right? The name, it's yeah. Just, uh, it's so frustrating because you're just asking that question. Why? I was I was going to box you back at one point and say, 
why don't we just give everybody a, a, a national ID? You know, not a driver's license, but if you got a social security number, go to your local DMV or library, get a picture, and it says, so and so address authorized to vote. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think that there has to be that. That has to be the line of thinking that we use in order to find yeah. a solution. I will be, I will say that when I was watching this, one of the things that came into my head though was that there weren't solutions being talked about in the documentary. So they weren't talking like because there are there are issues with all of these things, right? So if we want to say you, it's ridiculous to require a driver's license for people to vote because there are so many situations where a person might not have a driver's license and can't vote. But just like anything in life, you need to be able to say, okay, but if you're not able to have a driver's license, then what can you have? Because there needs to be something, right? And while voter fraud has been largely overblown, according to the stats that this talks about, it's still something that should be a secure event voting, right? There should be situations where we can track and confirm that people are not voting multiple times. So there has to be something, but we need to be able to have people that are bringing those solutions and using critical thinking and brainstorming to find what that is going to be. I can't come up with it like on the fly, but you know, it's got to be something else because what we have is not fair and not working. So, you know, you know, you can fix that problem. Stacey Abrams. I'm just Stacey, you know what? Right oh, I, she's got my vote, man. I, Stacey Abrams. Y'all, if you only know her because of her close loss in the Georgia governor election in which it was probably fraud occurring in that, you need to get to know this woman. And hopefully this documentary will be your entrance to that because I was blown away. She has been just an incredibly intelligent woman from the very beginning. We get to go back and see some footage from her high school days. She is so articulate, so smart, so caring, so humble, like the way that she carries herself. Uh, I just, I'm massively impressed by her as well. And I would like follow her into battle in whatever it is that she's, whatever direction she's pointing. So, okay. Last but not least, we saved what we consider the best for last because we were both thoroughly blown away by how much fun this was. Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous. If you have not heard of this, this is an eight-episode animated series available on Netflix on September the 18th. It stars Scott Creamer from Pinky Malinky and Lane Lueris from Kung Fu Panda The Paws of Destiny, which is the Kung Fu Panda animated show. They serve as, uh, not stars them, they serve as showrunners and executive producers. Um, the series is executive produced by Steven Spielberg, Frank Marshall, and Colin Trevorrow. So it's got some actual Jurassic Park knowledge in there. And Zach Stintz serves as the consulting producer. Synopsis for this series is Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous follows the adventures of six teenagers who are chosen for a once-in-a-lifetime experience at an adventure camp on the opposite side of Isla Nublar. However, once the events of Jurassic World occur and the dinosaurs get loose, the teens find themselves stranded. Cut off from the outside world, the six have to rely on each other to survive. I'm going to run down a couple of essentials and then let you tell me what you thought. So the episodes in this, again, there are eight and there are about 22 minutes each. I counted up. It took me like just under three hours to watch this whole thing. I binged it one after the other. So it was about two hours and 45 minutes. Great length for a show, in my opinion. There are six, seven, eight main characters 
we have a character named Darius, who is a camper, who is a dinosaur fanatic and at times becomes a leader. We have a character named Brooklyn, who is a camper and a social media sensation, which has a whole new layer of interesting to this group. A character named Kenji, who is rich, egotistical, and is a self-appointed VIP camper. We have a character named Sammy, who is a gregarious and enthusiastic camper. And we have a, character, a camper named Ben, who is like a sensitive, bookish guy and very much a rule follower. And then the sixth camper is Yaz, who is a world-class athlete. There are two camp counselors named Roxy and Dave. So in the synopsis, it said this was set during the events of Jurassic World. So I rewatched both Jurassic World and, unfortunately, Jurassic World 2 for the first time. My first, second viewing of that film, I should say. And still terrible, Patrick. So luckily, it has no ties to this series whatsoever. Only the first Jurassic World movie. And I thought it was awesome because when when I rewatched it and then went straight into the series, I was able to make that direct correlation of what was happening in between the the movie. And it fits perfectly. And the show pulls in events just briefly enough. There are nods to characters in Jurassic World. Sometimes they'll make a phone call. And you'll get a name drop to somebody from Jurassic World. You'll get to meet a couple of them throughout the series. uh, Characters that we know and maybe not necessarily love, but we definitely know. And I loved that aspect of it. It made it feel connected to me in a way that wasn't forced, that was very natural. And yet it still felt like its own thing. The other big takeaway for me, Patrick, is this felt like Jurassic Park. So it has a Jurassic World vibe and it's in that world, but this felt like the closest thing to the original Jurassic Park that has happened since the original Jurassic Park, which shocked the crap out of me because I was not expecting that. Um, and and I loved it. So, like, what did you think? That we got kids' relationships at play here, the kids trying to come together and learn about each other and get through these challenging situations. There's some action that happens, all kinds of events. We can't talk about specifics. No, we're not going to do that. Can't spoil it. Um, and there's this big theme throughout the series of picking the pieces up and keep going. It kind of is what I think pushes characters along throughout this adventure that takes place over maybe a handful of days. So I loved it, Patrick. I thought it was phenomenal. And I am going to watch it again with my kids when I get the chance because I didn't have them with me when I got to screen it. So did you like it? It's okay. If okay. you're an idiot, no, it's amazing. No, this is this is a series that took me just really by by surprise. I will go on record. I have gone on record as saying that Jurassic Park is a perfect movie, and I will fight anyone who says differently, in tongue in cheek ways or in fists, you know, whatever it takes. Um, watching this TV series and setting it against a backdrop like Jurassic World, I am probably in the minority when i say i really enjoyed jurassic world i enjoyed it's not one that i think we'll ever cover because i don't think you're very high on it and that's fine but it's no a, i love jurassic world let me make sure it, that the world knows okay. that i love jurassic world i think okay. Jurassic World okay. is awesome i actually will defend running in heels to my dying day so <laughs> that's as much that's how much i love jurassic world well so so i i enjoyed it a lot too and the way that camp cretaceous snuck up on me was the way I felt 
when Jurassic World started making its debut. And I started seeing teasers for it. I'm like, great. You're opening up a park where dinosaurs went nuts. Why are you doing this again? This is probably a fictitious and a non-fictitious marketing mistake. And then you see the movie and we get the reaction that we do. I did not watch Jurassic World first. I kind of wanted to, but then I said, no, let me just watch this on its own. And I tell you, as a self-contained series, it really does work well. Because the events of Jurassic World become very much bonus. So you'll find moments that are very familiar, areas in the park that you recognize. But the event that takes place in those areas feels both familiar because you've seen the movie, but also feels very new. And I think that as a series, standing on its own, it's incredibly entertaining. I love this bunch of kids. They remind me a lot of an updated version of The Breakfast Club because you have these sort of stereotypes that throughout the series kind of get broken down to an extent or they get expanded upon. It reminded me a little bit of Lost where you're getting introduced to these characters and you find out a little bit of mystery behind each one. I also love the fact that, and this is not in your face at all, there's diversity among the cast. I mean, the the lead, the one who this kind of focuses around for the most part is African-American. And then you have all these other characters that don't fit a mold that you would necessarily expect them to. Even the camp counselors are fantastic. I think Dave is just incredibly funny and he's only funny because of the foil in Roxy who kind of keeps him contained. And the the writing, the dialogue between all of these characters throughout the series feels very accurate when it comes to young kids. This is what I hear my son kind of saying here and there between him and his friends. And so it feels authentic. And so the 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 series itself feels very accessible to an all ages type crowd. But as you mentioned, there are moments when you're like, wow, that was a Jurassic Park moment. That was kind of serious. And as I've talked about this series, which I've talked it up immensely to probably three or four different people, I'm like, first chance you get, block out three hours and just enjoy the heck out of this. I've said, I want to expose my seven and a half year old to this. But I also want him to recognize that while there's no blood, this isn't a spoiler, it's Jurassic World. It's a an island filled with dinosaurs who get loose. And so there could be casualties. There could be fatalities. Nothing is shown in gory detail by any means. And so from a parent standpoint, you want to probably watch this first, check out the first few episodes. The first two or three will give you an idea of the terror factor and it will allow you to as a parent be able to kind of gauge is this something i'm ready for my child to see but in terms of an entertainment package in terms of storytelling all of it yes completely give yourself a chance and go see and go see it uh cue it up and watch it yeah and your son is like seven right at this point so yeah almost eight i mean so we're talking like younger kids maybe he's talking about that you should probably watch it first if your kids are old enough and have watched jurassic park and they're fine this is fine oh yeah (laughs) totally totally. so if they've watched jurassic park and jurassic world this is nowhere near like as scary as that but if you're looking for younger kids who you would like to introduce to this world for the first time it's a good way to do that and it's a little less scary, but Patrick's right. There are some moments where it's harrowing and some characters are definitely put into dangerous situations. 
Um, I love the dinosaur designs. So the animation is DreamWorks, uh, I believe. It's actually a project that is kind of a joint effort between Netflix, Universal Studios, Amblin Entertainment, and DreamWorks Animation. I thought it was beautiful. It's crisp. When it first started, I actually thought it was Sony because it had a very Into the Spider-Verse vibe to it, the way that it looked, like minus the fuzzy nature of the comic book feel, but just the way the characters are drawn. I thought that was great, um, and I really liked that. The dinosaurs, there's one in particular who I want to adopt and have a stuffed animal of and just bring home to be my puppy is what I'm going to say because it's amazing, <laughs> and I love it. Yeah, I was yeah. surprised as well. Go ahead. Yeah, um, and then uh, you know the action and the, the events that occur, there are several of them. Again, the episodes are really short, so they're 20 minutes long. They they move at a brisk pace, so your longer-term storyline that is taking place between these kids, it's not overdone, and it's not overdrawn. There are a few different, I would say dramatic issues between various couplings of the kids at times but it doesn't overstay its welcome it really balances that with the action and with the awe-inspiring nature of just being in a jurassic park world where you're here in this camp and you're here because you want to be here because you love dinosaurs and there are dinosaurs and oh my God, there are dinosaurs and yeah. it's awesome. So yeah. I got all of those feelings from it. Yeah. I, I look at Jurassic world camp Cretaceous as a wish list of things I would want to do in Jurassic world, because there are definitely callbacks to some of the attractions that you see on screen in Jurassic world, but there are also things in the park that you hear about or that show up as posters and whatnot that we actually get to see on screen as part of the Camp Cretaceous experience. And I think for for those of us that fell in love with both Jurassic Park and Jurassic World as a theme park idea, this is a fantastic realization of that expansion, of seeing the cool stuff that you could experience as a camper inside this really just amazing world. It it made me want to go back and not only rewatch Jurassic World, but actually visit the park at some point, which I know is fictitious. But I feel a lot like what you find out in the first episode, the excitement of Darius, whose lifelong dream at like nine years old or however old he is, is to go to Jurassic World. And the way that he gets to go is pretty fantastic. And I kind of felt like him. I was like, yes, can I be that other camper? I mean – Kenji doesn't sound like he wants to be there, so let me go instead, <laughs> that kind of thing. And I think it, as a series, it takes us back to our roots as kids when we walked into a Six Flags or a Disney World or a Silver Dollar City, and we see these amazing rides, and we just want to experience everything. And I think it really captures that in terms of what Jurassic World, as a concept, fictitiously, wanted to be, but ultimately did not because you know dinosaurs yeah definitely <laughs> yeah I, I i'm excited about this and i hope that it continues i hope that there is a second season and that there's more of this i mean obviously it's dealing with a specific camp and experience that these kids are going through 
but I would love if they would find a way to continue it somehow, either with these kids or with other kids or something. But like this animated style and this type of storytelling within the Jurassic Park universe hit the spot, man, in every single way. And it's awesome. It's just awesome. We both absolutely loved it. And that's why we wanted to end with it and leave on a high note. Again, it's coming out September the 18th. So you can catch it then. And just a quick recap, all in the fight for democracy, also coming out September 18th. That one will be on Amazon Prime. And then first of the bunch, The Devil All the Time, will be on Netflix September 16th. That's all we've got for this episode of FF+. Plus. Hope you've enjoyed it. Make sure you get those emails into feelandfilm at gmail.com with your favorite Hitchcock movie so you can be entered to win a copy of Psycho. We will be back soon with our regular episodes, so check the feed for that for The Dark Knight Rises, and until then, watch lots of movies. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter, but be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive and keep feeling film.